0: This morning we're going to begin um, a brand new series, and what we're doing is we're going to take the the very first book of the Bible. Now you're thinking, why are we in Romans? I'll explain. (laughs) We're going to take the very first book of the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, and there are six, there's a lot of characters in Genesis, but there are six major characters in Genesis, and so we're going to start a series today just kind of doing a quick survey of the book of Genesis and these six uh, characters Um, And so we're going to start today uh, and see what kind of what Paul says about this story. And uh, we're going to begin in in verse 12 of chapter 5 of Romans. So let's read what that says. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin was not yet counted where there is no law. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the church said, God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Before we get started on this series that I mentioned, I want to, um, I know some of you were not able to be with us last week. And last week was a very important week in the life of the church. And of this church in particular, of Northridge Life Church, and um, unfortunately, we had technical difficulty. Those things happen every once in a while, and the sermon did not get recorded. And so if you were not here to hear it, I'm going to give you the, the whole gist of it in 60 seconds. Basically, we've been talking for one full year about what the church is, what it's meant to be, and and uh, how that we are called not just to attend church or to kind of be churchy or go to church, but we're we're called to connect our lives to the church to be members of each other in the church. And that's not members like you join a country club or join some kind of social thing, but it's members as though, you know, your body has many members. It has ears and eyes and fingers and toes and and, and we're supposed to be that interconnected as the body. And so what we did, we asked everybody that was here to officially affirm that they, uh, if, that, now if this is true, we didn't ask you to, to do this if you didn't feel like it was true, but if you feel called to be a part of this body, if you feel like that you, you have a spiritual home here at Northridge Life Church, we asked you to affirm that to us. Um, and, and so for you who weren't here last week, I'm going to ask you to do the exact same thing right now. What we ask you to do is to take one of these white cards that we talk about a lot, Pastor David talked about earlier, and on the front here, now if you've been coming here for a while and we have your address and we know you, you don't have to take the time to fill all this out. Most of you did, and I appreciate it, but but you don't have to. Just let us know your name, maybe a phone number. And then down here on the on these little check boxes, there's one that says interested in membership. And Um, If you're here and you have not done that, but you consider this the place where you're home and and you're a member here, we need you to do that. No one is just assumed a member from this point forward, not me, not the other elders. No one is until we kind of uh, affirm some things together. And so what we need you to do, we need you to do this. And just uh, before you leave today, drop it in the box in the back and we'll get that and we'll be in touch with you in the next few days. And uh, uh, some of you might wonder why we haven't been in touch with you yet. One thing, I was out of town all week last week, but we're also kind of waiting for everybody to kind of get in. And one thing that, that wants to get in. And so, um, but if you would do that today, that would be really helpful to us. So there's the commercial, um, and uh, we want you to respond to that. Let's get on to the message, okay? I mentioned that we're beginning this series on the characters in the book of Bible. Now, now in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and this is going to include the characters of Adam. We're kind of lumping Eve together with him today. And so Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And what we want from this series is we want you to see and hope that you never forget that God has been working on the same plan from the very beginning. From the moment God said, let there be light, he has not changed, altered, redirected at all the plan that he has for the human race. He has not changed the plan that he has for the entire created cosmos. We want you to see that he's had that plan from the beginning. And more importantly, we want you to firmly understand that what God begins, God finishes. He does not give up on his plan until he looks at it and says, it is all accomplished. Well done. And more than that, even we want you to be able to take these look at these six characters. Many of you have known about them all your life. You heard about them in Sunday school and children's church, and you heard maybe moralistic lessons about how you should be like this one and not be like this one. And, and But we, what we want you to do is to see Jesus in the lives of all the people we'll be discussing. Now, the name Jesus is not found one single time in the entire book of Genesis. But the point of every single story we're going to tell you over the next few weeks is Jesus. The point of every single story that we're going to revisit and remind ourselves of, Jesus Christ runs through like a like a crimson thread through every single one of those stories. We're going to show you that. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings it 's what the word means, and it kind of starts everything it 's the story of creation it 's the story of how we got into the mess we 're in and the fall of man it 's the story of of god 's holiness and his wrath and the judgment that he is righteously able to pour out on the world and more importantly it 's the story of the beginning of god 's determination. To save a people for himself. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be very interested in that story, in that determination, because he was determined from the very book of Genesis to save a people for himself, among which we have many here today. It's traditionally understood that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which of course would include Genesis. The historicity of Genesis is constantly under attack. People say, ah, oh, that couldn't have been true, this isn't right. And mostly it's because in our secular age that Darwinianism has just so dominated the culture and this kind of scientific enlightenment has so dominated the culture that people have just kind of just disregarded Genesis. Now, I want to highly caution you against doing that. And I wanted to use only one rationale for cautioning you against dismissing the book of Genesis. You know what that is? Before you dismiss the, the book, before you join this chorus of people who dismiss the book of Genesis for one reason or another, I want you to remember that no less than Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry on multiple occasions testified to the realities of the book of Genesis. That just kind of went right over you. Jesus said, this is true. Jesus testified to the reality of the creation of man and woman, not millions of years into creation, but from the beginning. He said that. He testified to the reality of the flood of Noah's time. And it's interesting in the comments he makes in that in the Gospels, he talks as though he was an eyewitness to it. He talks about the fiery judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He even talks about specifically the punishment on Lot's wife. And it would be really, really smart of us not to think that we have mentally evolved past the one who most certainly was an eyewitness of all of these events. It'd be really smart not to do that. Genesis begins with a simple, very simple, y'all know it, you could say it without even looking at the screen, but a simple yet profound statement on the origin of everything that you can perceive. It says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Isn't that simple statement, you can resolve any other question on origins that you have. God created. I don't know, you don't know the intricacies of what, uh, what, how all that transpired. We, you know, the Bible doesn't quite frankly give us a lot of details. It gives us one full chapter of detail on, on the, the creation of the earth. But, but as believers, as people who trust what the scriptures say about Jesus, about God, we should just, Take a big sigh of relief at the first two words, or at, the, at the, those two words, that God created. God created, and we can rest in that. Amen? Chapter 1 gives an orderly account, as I mentioned, of how it all came to be. God created light. God created an atmosphere. God separated seas from dry land. God created trees and plants. He created astronomical bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the comets, God created aquatic creatures and birds. God created mammals and insects and amphibians and reptiles. And at the end of all of that, the earth is now full. But, but you, you get the sense that as God is looking over the, the amazing act of creation, he, he, he sees it as full, but he does not see it as complete. One more thing. One more thing God wants. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let us, us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all this stuff we created, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God did it. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Ladies, listen. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is not in my notes. just kind of a little sidebar. But isn't it cool that God blessed them? And then he told them what to do. Some of you are trying to figure out what God wants you to do so he'll bless you. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. God blesses us. Then he tells us what to do. So some of you just need to say, God, I, I acknowledge your blessing. Now I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do. Unlike the parrots and the aardvarks and the praying mantises and all those things, God created mankind, man and woman, with a very, very special, unique, not able to be fulfilled by any other being, any other creature, he gave them the special role. And, and mankind would now be the vice regent. Just let that sink in the vice regent of God's own authority over the entirety of the new creation. He would be in charge, second only to God Himself, over the entire new creation. He would exercise God's kingly dominion over everything. But even more amazing, He would do so bearing God's own image. What does that mean? Though he had a physical form like you and I do, he would be a spiritual being. How is that defined? He would be capable of having communion with God, of interacting with the eternal. Genesis chapter 2 gives us more details as to the creation of these image bearers, both male and female. It says that the man was formed out of the dust of the ground meticulously. Notice that before God spoke and things were formed and they were created, but not man God got down, if you can imagine it, on his knees and got his hands in the mud and the dust and he began to form this creature that would be called man. In the account we see God kneeling beside this creature and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life so that this man wouldn't just become alive, all of the other creatures were alive, but this man would become a living, eternal soul and God named his creation Adam. A search was then made for a compatible mate for the man among all the other living things. It's kind of a comical story in the Bible when God's saying, okay, Adam, we're going to find you a mate. And God sits Adam down and over however long it would have taken, God begins to parade every other living thing in front of his newly created man and asked Adam, hey, what do you want to name this one? What do you want to name this one? And, and Adam, knowing that God is trying to find his compatible partner in a day where there is no match.com or anything like that, that God is parading ladybugs and elephants and, and baboons in front of Adam. And he must have thought, I sure hope God can find something a little better than what I'm seeing right here. This is not going to work. See, God, in his grace and mercy, determined it wasn't good for man to be alone. All the husbands said, amen. Man, I, I was a mess when I got married, and I'm a, a, a constantly less of a mess with every passing year that I am married. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So what God did is he commandeered one of the ribs in the man, and he formed it into a helper suitable who the man actually later called her woman. And even later than that in the in the text, He calls her Eve. The Bible tells us that they exercised the authority they'd been given in fellowship with God and in deep, passionate love for one another. The Bible tells us this interesting statement. The last verse of chapter 2, it says that they were naked and unashamed. That that seems like such a random fact. And, And how could it be possible? You and I are deathly afraid of public nudity, and we should be. I want to make that clear. Don't get too comfortable. But we're definitely afraid of that. But the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. And I heard a man say one time that, that there can only be one reason for that. In this world where, that was not yet perverted by sin, not yet perverted by, by this, this you know, constant focus on ourselves, this constant obsession with ourselves, that they had two focuses. One was on each other. I, they never realized they were naked because they were so busy looking at the other one. They also walked every day in the cool of the day with their creator and looked to him. Didn't have time to worry about themselves. So they were naked. They were unashamed. Perfect harmony. And they were given a gift that is not comparable to anything that we can even begin to imagine. They were given the deed, the leadership deed, to the entire planet. They were supposed to start in this one little place this this one location called eden and literally worked their way outwards subduing and filling the entire earth they were given the absolute keys to the front door they were in charge nothing in that entire creation would be withheld from them anything they wanted to do see eat whatever was given to them oh with the one notable exception a whole planet anything they want and One rule. One rule. There was one single tree. They were promised they could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want you to think about that name. Why would God withhold fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What are you always trying to teach your kids? I taught that boy to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And God withholds it from him. Why? Because in a world... Where you have perfect love and perfect fellowship with your Creator, you can allow the knowledge of good and evil, knowing right and wrong, to be fully the domain of your Creator. Law is not necessary when you're walking with the lawgiver. Not necessary. And there's a message for us in the gospel about that. They needed no law because they had perfect love, they had perfect fellowship. But then one day, you probably know the story, one day it happened and an interloper in the form of a serpent came into their peaceful garden home and he asked questions about the character of their loving creator. Genesis 3, one records that moment. Serpent says, did God, hold on, I want to make sure I got this right. Did God actually say that you can't eat of any tree in this whole garden? And Eve is hearing this. He's, whoa, 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 no, 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 you got it all wrong. And after she told him what God actually did say, the serpent implied, blatantly deceived Eve and implied that the very personification of truth, the one who 4,000 years later would stand in front of his disciples and he would say, I am the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. He looked at the character of that one and said that he had lied to Adam and Eve. They said, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God had said the day they eat of it, they will die. He said, nah, God knows. See, God's God's tricking you. God is deceiving you. God's holding out on you. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And why wouldn't you want that? Why why does only God get to know good and evil? Man, you are getting ripped off here. You have the deed to the whole planet, and God's too selfish to share with you that one measly tree. Is that not absurd? Answer me. Is that not absurd? And how many times have you and I fallen for the same type of a lie? How many times have, have we looked at all the goodness, all the generosity, all the selfless love, demonstrated most clearly on the cross, and we've said, not enough. Why are you holding out on me, God? Why aren't I healed? Why don't I have a better job? Why don't I have a better spouse? Why are you holding out on me? all it took. She ate it. She handed it to her husband, who incidentally was standing right there with her. She didn't have to go fetch him. And he ate it also. In that moment, they instinctively knew. No one had to tell them. They instinctively knew that something had changed. They knew for the first time that they were completely, they were, they knew. They felt shame. They had no context shame and they felt deep deep shame so they did what we've all done where they tried to cover their nakedness and hide from each other and more importantly from God's searching burning eyes <laughs> but in a great inexplicable unless you're talking about God in a great inexplicable act of mercy God didn't suddenly destroy him he said that in the day they eat it they'll surely die and they surely did spiritually but god didn't just instantly just snuff them out and start all over he didn't abandon them he said all right you're on your own suckers i'm out of here he delivered a great message to them, but before he did he went looking for them. they didn't want him to and he but he just came walking just like he always did in the cool of the day and he said these words he said adam where are you Now, if you think you're playing hide and seek with God, do you think that God doesn't really know where you are at? God was saying, Adam, do you know where you are? Adam, are you aware of where you have taken yourself through your disobedience? Where are you, Adam? And then, like I said, he delivers this sentence in his holiness on the serpent's meddling. And he delivers a sentence on the sin and the rebellion of these two prized creations. The serpent now would be cursed. And he would crawl on his belly and eat dust, the lowest of all the animals for the rest of his life. You don't think he's the lowest of all animals? How many of you like messing around with snakes, enmity between us and him? The man would not be exempted from the curse. He'd be cursed with hard labor and death and pain. The woman would be subject to her husband and experience pain and giving birth. But God's pronouncements didn't just end there. He didn't just kind of give him one of these. He left them all, the serpent, the man, the woman, he left them all with a promise. Isn't that just like God? He left them with a promise. It was a negative promise for the serpent, one that would haunt him all his days, and very, very positive message, very positive promise to the man and his wife. God told them that one was coming who would be known as the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. He, too, would endure pain he would be the victim of the serpent but in the end that wouldn't be the end of his story in the end this seed this offspring would deal a fatal blow to the serpent that he would never recover from and it would be his ultimate punishment for the mischief he wrought in the garden that day and god dismissed the couple from the garden and he secured it against their re-entry with an angel bearing a flashing flaming sword but before he did Oh, that still wasn't the end of the story. Before he, he finally dismissed them from their once happy home, he slaughtered an animal. For the first time in human history, blood was splattered everywhere. Before their very eyes, he skinned that animal. And, and he, he, he blew away the silly little fig leaves that they had used to cover themselves. And he draped them in the skin of that innocent victim, that innocent animal, because God was not willing to leave them. And that was a promise. That was a sign of what was coming. When we look at our text today from Romans 5 this morning, we see that the repercussions, the ripple effect of Adam and Eve's sin have been severe for all of us. Paul tells us that because of the fall of our first parents, not only has sin entered the world, where it was once absent, but it's also contaminated everything. Every child born since that day in the garden has been corrupted by the sin of our forefather, our foremother. But the whole of creation, not just the hearts of humanity, the whole of creation has been corrupted as well. Because of a fallen world, Uh, we have only experienced, all of us in this room, we've only experienced one reality since the day of our birth. You cannot imagine, none of you, I can't, you, none of us can imagine a, a world that's not filled with war, a world that's not filled with loss, a world that's not filled with disease and poverty, all of which are the results of one man's sin. But what we have to acknowledge is that while a sin-scarred world is our only perceived reality. It was never a part of God's original design. Oh, God planned for it. He knew it was coming, but it was never what he intended. He designed this world to be good. He, he created and over and over again, the Bible says he saw what he created. and He said it was good or very good. And he designed this world to be filled with peace and ruled for him by mankind. And more than that, Sin not only has corrupted and contaminated everything, sin has brought for us all death as its wages. You guys are all familiar with it, Romans says, that the wages of sin is death. It says in Ezekiel that the soul that sins will surely die. Every one of us, every one of us, with no exceptions, have sinning souls. And therefore, there's not much you can guarantee in this life, but I will guarantee you 100% that every one of you are going to die. Every one of you are going to die. There is no avoiding it. In our text today, Paul said it like this, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We spend a lot of time and Money and energy, exercising and eating right, which we should definitely do. But the fact remains that every one of us is rushing headlong toward the day of our death. I heard the story this week, just this week, of two young men, different cities, different circumstances whose lives were snuffed out and they were both very, very young. Neither one of them, if you'd asked them a year ago, would have expected to not be on planet Earth this morning. Neither one of them. Neither one of them thought that they would face God this early. But my question to you is, uncomfortable as it may seem, is you might think, man, this this is a tough sermon, but hey, it's the truth. My question to you is, are you next? Are you the next one? Will we place you in a box and put you six feet under the ground sometime in the next week, the next month, the next year? You might be here, you're a teenager, you're a college student, you think, no way, no, no, no. You have no idea. The Bible says that our days are like, a, and you you imagine when the weather is cold and you breathe on a pane of glass and you'll see that fog and then it just suddenly retreats. That's what the Bible is describing your life. You have no guarantee. But unlike a disease, listen, 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 unlike a disease, you know, we have this sin and death working in us and, and, and people will call that a disease. And I guess that's kind of true, but But unlike a disease that just consumes our body and over which we have little or no control, the Bible makes it clear that each one of us, from Adam and Eve onward, are culpable for our sinful choices. We're not just sick, folks. We are guilty. We're not just sick. We're guilty. Caught red-handed, holding the bag, we're guilty. We're culpable for our sinful choices. We stand before God guilty with no excuse. Every one of us has incurred the just wrath of god for choosing sin paul said it like this the judgment following one man's trespass of course adam's brought what condemnation the sentence the verdict already been delivered we are guilty and we will be judged we'll all be judged we'll all be found lacking we'll all be condemned you can't possibly clean yourself up enough and if you think you can, you're deceiving yourself. You cannot clean yourself up to be acceptable to an uncompromisingly holy God. How often? Get real with yourself. Be honest with yourself. How often today have your thoughts, have your motives been impure? With what selfish acts are you right now stained with this morning? Jesus said to the even most religious expert in the law kind of guys of his day he said you serpents you brood of vipers how are you to escape being sentenced to hell are we arrogant enough to think that we are any better than the guys who memorized the entire old testament when you hear the story of adam and eve it might be easy to resent them we might wish that they'd been a little bit more steadfast less liable to that old serpent, that temptation. But come on, we can't possibly think that we would have done any better. Think for just a moment again of all the times in your life to this point that you have violated the direct commandment of Almighty God expressed in His Word. How many thousands, how many tens of thousands of times, just like they did, Exactly what they did is what we've done. But thankfully, thankfully, everyone take a deep breath. Thankfully, the story is not over in the end of Genesis 3. In fact, it's just getting started. See, we mustn't forget, I said this earlier, but we can't forget that God always gets what he desires. If you are dumb enough, I know that sounds really rude, sorry, but if you're dumb enough to think that you in your pipsqueak little human life, can derail the plan of God, you're an idiot. God always gets what God wants. Job, thinking God was picking on him for all that time, at the end of the book, he makes this incredible statement. I know now <laughs> that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Amen? Paul states that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. He was a type in the sense that he was a perfect mirror reflection. It's the point of the whole passage we read in Romans 5. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again calls Jesus the last Adam. Not the second Adam, but the last Adam. He was the promise of Genesis 3.15, that thing about the, the, the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. He was the promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled, the one who would fatally bruise the head of the serpent, though he would bear the serpent's strike on his heel. Adam tried to be like God through disobedience. In the day you eat it, you're going to be like God. What a sales pitch. And the result was tidal wave of judgment, tidal wave of condemnation, sin, and ultimately death. But unlike Adam, who abdicated his throne as the vice regent of God, Jesus went the other direction. He took humanity upon himself in order to accomplish everything that God had commissioned mankind to do and be. He took humanity on himself. He didn't, even though he was God, even though he clearly was God, that's the message of Scripture, he didn't grasp at his divinity or claim any special privilege because of it. Christ fully and perfectly obeyed the Father in everything. Philippians 2 even tells us that he obeyed to the point of death after living a life of perfectly unblemished righteousness. This is the double mystery of the life and death of Jesus Christ. You see, he lived a perfect life that Adam should have lived even in the face of temptation. Jesus lived that life. He secured righteousness for those who could have never achieved it. But he also died the substitutionary death on the cross. Though he lived that perfect life, he paid the penalty of all that you and I have failed to do. Or, or better yet, all that you and I have refused to do in obedience to the revealed law of God. And what does he do with both this righteousness and the full payment of our penalty? You're going to like this. He gives it to us as a free gift. He gives it away as a free gift. Listen for the words free gifts in this next passage from this text we read this morning. For if many died through one man, Adam's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many oh here it is again and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification now if you can believe it it actually gets better the death that we're all facing has been stripped of all its power because of jesus's obedience as well i said we're all going to die i can't take that away we all are going to die but but it's changed. You're still going to die in this body. But instead of your death, the day of your death, being a reminder of the curse that you're under, death by the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ has been turned to us into a grace that will usher us into the eternal presence of God. Take that, devil. For if, Paul says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance and grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter dedicated entirely to the physical resurrection of believers who die in Christ, Paul invites us all to have a mocking party, to mock death, because we're now in Jesus. He says, oh, death. Where's your sting? Oh, death. Where's your victory? Death for the believers is something to be not a mock, something that we have no reason to fear because of Jesus Christ. But the greatest thing of all that Christ has accomplished is that he is reigning. Listen to this. You may have never considered it. Jesus Christ is reigning in dominion over the whole earth as the man Christ Jesus, as Paul calls him in 1 Timothy 2.5. Some of you may have trouble thinking of christ as a man but you have to remember that that was always the plan and yet it doesn't in any way diminish the fact that jesus is also a hundred percent god people who haven't thought about this or maybe are new to christianity when they try to understand jesus they'll see him and will say well he was kind of uh 50 50 he was half god half man he was kind of like this spiritual cyborg i guess is how they envision that but but that's not at all true See, everything that God is, Jesus is. He is God. But everything that man was intended to be, Jesus is. He is man. Jesus is God. It's an absolutely true statement. And Jesus is man. And that's an absolutely true statement. And thank God for it. Jesus laid back his, his divinity, took on humanity and became our substitute. He kept his humanity in order to become our brother and our friend. His favorite title to apply to himself in his earthly ministry was the Son of Man. And he ascended to the Father as a man before the eyes of, of many. But Jesus was and is this moment worshipped by both men and angels. No other man can claim that that honor. The wind and the waves obey him. He demonstrated his power over demons, disease, and death. He is God equal to both, the Father and the Spirit. And knowing this puts his last comment before his ascension in proper perspective, that he is both man and God. It puts this in proper perspective. Remember when he said, all authority in heaven? We understand that because he's God. But he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what was God's intention for Adam? That all authority on earth would be given to him. And so what is Jesus saying in Matthew 28, he's saying, mission accomplished. The man, the man of God's own choosing, as Martin Luther said, now holds within his hand all authority on earth. He has taken dominion over all creation. God had always intended for a man to sit in dominion over the whole earth. God always gets whatever he wants. We've said that over and over, by any means necessary, and his plans cannot be warded. But Paul Says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it's written the first man, Adam, became a living being. But watch this, this is good. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was given life, and the last Adam gives life. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, and we all have. Guess what? You've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And the Bible tells us in the very next book of the Bible that from one element of glory to the next, we are being transformed in this life into the image of the man of heaven. What a great promise. As you sit there to, here today, as you sit there, ask yourself, get real with God. Ask yourself, am I a man or woman of the dust? Am I only destined to return to dust, have a heart that stops, breath that stops, and then let sin have all of its reward and I just crumble into a grave and decay and become food for worms? Or are you, through belief, through where you've placed your trust, are you one of those who are not of the dust anymore, but you're of heaven? Are you living a merely natural life, marching toward the grave? Or are you living a spiritual life that's only concealed in a physical body, and a physical experience? Think about your life. Think about it. Don't think about what you your religious self imagines think about the reality of your life this very moment whose image do you bear paul told us we all begin life bearing the image of the man of dust and earth but if you place your trust in the man of heaven the last adam you will bear his image increasingly and throughout eternity the image of the first adam will fade from those of us who believe through the sanctifying work of the holy spirit but for those of us who don't believe Will go to your graves with the pronouncement of God, the pronouncement of your creator that he gave to Adam. You are dust, and to dust you will return. Their lives fading and blowing away with no eternal impact, no eternal reward whatsoever. Today as we come to the table of the Lord, let's remember what this is all about, that Christ Jesus became flesh. He became flesh to do all that, Adam failed to do and that his very real body was broken for you and me and that he spilled crimson streams from his hands, his feet, his back, his head, his side, so that you and I, just like Adam and Eve, might also have our nakedness covered. You may think he came here today styling and profiling, but if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you sit there right now, buck naked, exposed, nothing to hide. And Jesus is saying, hey, come to the fountain because there's been a much greater sacrifice that's been made for you. Much more precious blood has been shed for you so that you might be covered in robes of righteousness. He's calling you to believe today. To Remember that though Jesus was violently killed, death was embarrassingly incapable of holding Jesus as its prey. He conquered it, not only for himself, but for all of us as well. Adam's legacy to his children was sin, a curse, death. See, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ's gift to his children was righteousness, blessing, eternal life. If you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus, what on earth could you possibly be waiting for? What are you waiting on? Isn't it time? The Bible says today is the day to be saved. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. Place your trust in his work. If you need some help, we're about to receive communion. And I'm always sitting right there on those stairs. Come in this line. Pull me aside. I'd love to talk to you if you need some help. If you have questions, just catch me. Communion line. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. And if you would all stand with me. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the familiar words we read every week as we approach the table of the Lord. And this is what Paul writes He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We talked today about how he took on humanity and he took that body that he was given just like Adam was given a body formed from the dust, and Jesus took his, and he gave it back, and he said, I'm going to give this body to you, and it's going to be broken for you so that you don't have to be broken. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant said, the soul that sins dies. But the new covenant said something pretty awesome. It said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Irregardless of the sin that they bring into the picture. They call on the Lord, they'll be saved. And this new covenant is symbolizing that cup and, the, and his blood. And Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Man, what a great morning to remember what Christ has done. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Prepare your hearts and when you're ready, the table is open. You've got people here to serve you and just come and receive from the table of the Lord.